Hello everyone and welcome back to the Great Women Artists podcast. Last week's interview featured an episode with the trailblazing artist Sonia Boyce and today we speak to the world expert Pamela Banos on the incredible photographer Vivian Meyer who has one of the most interesting stories in art history, one being that she never even exhibited during her lifetime. Vivian Meyer features in my book The Story of Art Without Men which is out in the UK and Europe and will be published on the 2nd of May here in the US. So pre-order your copy now. But this week I am delighted to say that this episode is sponsored by Ocular, a premium gallery platform, magazine and advisory business. Ocular represents the best of contemporary art. Ocular.com provides collectors, art world professionals and art enthusiasts with online access to over 200 of the world's best galleries. With the leading galleries represented on Ocular, you can use the platform to search for information on and follow exceptional artists like Vivian Meyer, the subject of today's podcast. If after listening to this interview, you want to learn more about her practice or other incredible great women artists, do visit ocular.com. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the author, artist, writer and academic Pamela L. Banos. A professor at Northwestern University, Pamela Banos is also the world expert on the artist we will be discussing today, the street photographer Vivian Meyer, whose life spanned the 20th century and who, despite taking pictures incessantly and amassing more than 100,000 negatives, never published or exhibited her work in her lifetime. A street photographer who has been compared to the likes of Helen Nevitt and Diane Arbus, Meyer's photographs reveal a woman who had empathy for her subjects, from children to the elderly, and who were often unaware of her presence. She famously worked with a Rolleiflex camera, which she would use for several decades, allowing for her signature square format, but which didn't need also to be brought up to one's eye, enhancing even further how she could catch her subjects off guard. When asked about her occupation, she said, I'm sort of a spy. I'm the mystery woman. Tracing the people, politics and landscape of mid to late 20th century in North America, Maya's extensive oeuvre recorded life as it passed her by. And here's the thing, because she never exhibited or published her work during her lifetime, she was predominantly known for her primary role as a nanny to children in the Chicago area. So much remains missing, which is why I can't wait to speak to Pamela, who has looked at tens of thousands of these images, traced Maya's footsteps from the US to France, and delved into the archive in search of everything we might know about the photographer. Pamela Banos, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. 
My absolute pleasure. So thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I have been wanting to speak about Vivian Meyer for so long because when I am confronted with the photographs by her, I am both perplexed and amazed, whether it is her self-portraits that reveal a woman who is both inquisitive and experimental or the streets of New York City or Chicago that despite catching people off guard, almost look like a still from a movie. They are so animated and sometimes glamorous, but are also embedded in this mystery and a surrealist anger. But most of all, they make me question who this woman was. So I want to start off by asking you, how do you feel in front of Vivian Meyer's work? Oh, I feel transported. I feel back in time to the whatever era of the photographs that I look at, because I feel like she's a reflection of that time and the photographs bring us right back there. It's interesting that you would mention Hollywood because there is this kind of closed loop of our understanding of the 50s in particular, her earliest work that we've all, I think, are the most familiar with because it is sort of just like the movies, especially that were shot in New York. They look like the same characters, in fact. That's so true, that kind of Hollywood glamour, those black and white images. My favourite is of that woman who was just standing outside the New York Public Library as if we're just sort of catching her off guard between a scene that's just happened and something's about to happen afterwards as well. Well, what's funny about that photograph is she's actually on a bus <laughs> driving by. So she's literally like tracking that scene. So you could actually see the images slightly blurred and cut at the frame. And it literally was just a moment in time, which is how you know all photographs are. But they freeze time in such a way that make things look so purposeful, especially in the compositions that she made. Yeah, they are so filmic. It's almost like they're staged, but they're not. I mean, her sort of acute sensibility of catching life in that second of a moment is extraordinary. I mean, why are you particularly drawn to the images? I was drawn to them initially because being in Chicago, saw the very first show that was launched of her work in 2010. And I brought one of my photography classes to see it at the Chicago Cultural Center. And in that show, all the photographs were of New York because it was very early in the history of discovering her work. And her work changes from decade to decade. And depending on where she is in her travels, in the later work in Chicago is very different. But what I was most struck by with that show is that her clothing and her objects were also on display. So she was immediately presented as this you know, the mystery nanny. So that was in 2010. Am I right in thinking that she died in 2009? So this was happening just after she died. Right. Here's a little known little twist to think about this whole story. She's still alive when her work starts to get disseminated. In 2007 is when her storage lockers were sold because she had stopped paying the fee to keep them. And there's a series of things that trigger when they become abandoned. And so her storage lockers were auctioned. My first talks that I started giving were called Vivian Meyer's Fractured Archive, because what I'm interested in is how we will never piece together her entire archive because of the way it just sort of exploded outward when it was found. She had five storage lockers. There were more after that. They were re-auctioned and she was alive for two more years. Her work started to be put online at that time. And we're in the very early stages of Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, I don't think was even invented yet at that point. So her work was put online, even with her name, while she was living in Chicago's North Side, as sort of a recluse, people thought she was a homeless person because she spent most of her days sitting on this bench looking out over Lake Michigan. And she wouldn't talk to people. Interestingly, 
unless they spoke with her in French. She was very tied to people who were French and she befriended them more so. She didn't trust at this point. She had classic um, paranoia where she thought people were listening to her or looking at her and so forth. So there's this horrible irony that as she's being discovered, the people who do know her don't know her name enough or weren't able to put the story together. So there's this little period of time that is pretty unknown because she does emerge in 2009, 2010 after she's dead, which makes it into another one of these artists discovered after her death, even though she was discovered while she was alive, but the pieces were too far apart to actually reassemble. So in 2012, it was two years after she was discovered and Chicago's public television station had done a small documentary about Vivian Meyer. And they were revisiting the story two years later to make a new little documentary for this public television station called The Meteoric Rise of Vivian Meyer. And so in those two years since she was discovered, so this is 2012 now, and several books had come out by this time, or at least a couple of them, um, the art world proper, the high art world, hadn't really embraced Vivian Meyer. She was being embraced by the whole public, international, because of the internet. She was immediately, you know, launched in the world. And there was this popular movement that was recognizing her as the nanny and the mystery. And it was just like all of the romance that goes with that just captured everybody's imagination. But nobody had looked into who she was. It was just enough to keep it a mystery because that's what a good story is. And even in John Maloof's movie, which is called Finding Vivian Meyer, it was really his story and his journey to try to figure out who she was. Because I still really don't think we know who she was and all of her, you know, the impetus behind everything. But so what happened was I teach at a university near Chicago and the public television wanted to get response to the critique that some gallerist said that Vivian Meyer's work, specifically her 1950s work, was derivative. It looked like other people's work. And it wasn't as good as the other people's work to whom she had been compared. (laughs) Ridiculous. So the chair of my department said, we'd like you to look into this. Do you know who she is? I said, yes, I took a class to her first show. I'm very familiar with her work. But give me a little time to research so that I could properly address that question. And it was just supposed to be a little soundbite that was my response to that question, whether I was going to be incredulous or whether I was going to agree with that assertion. But I wanted to see more of her work before I did that. So at that point, I found hundreds of her photographs online, which is more than what the typical person who she was even compared with, perhaps, the work was available. So her work was out there, and there was a lot of it. And I found it on all different sites. And I started researching her, and I looked into her family, and I found out that she was living the legacy of the women in her family in terms of being a live-in domestic servant. Her mother was a live-in maid. Her grandmother was a live-in cook, both in New York City. It wasn't something that was, oh, a nanny. She was part of the legacy of the women in her family. So check. Okay. The nanny thing is because it was what she knew. It was the kind of job that afforded no rent. You got fed. And you had time to do things, which leads to, you know, the nanny photographer, which what I like to do in my book is switch those words and call her the photographer who was also a nanny Mm. because she spent 
the majority of her life photographing. She didn't spend the majority of her life being a nanny. But this is just so yeah. incredible how yeah. she was like an internet phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even though these works are from the 50s. Right, right. And so, and this was maybe the first time this kind of story could happen in the way that it did. In fact, her very first article written about her was in a British newspaper and it was about the French nanny photographer. So they brought her back they made her a French nanny. I mean, her background was France, but from the very, I think it was in the Telegraph, from the very first article, it was this romantic story yeah. and this mystery that people mm. love. And so most people, I think, still see it as a mystery, even though there have been many answers to yeah. the different questions along the way. At any rate, I did so much research. One of the things that I found was a on a Tumblr site, a photograph that she had taken of Salvador Dali in front of the Museum of Modern Art. Like actually Salvador Dali? Yeah. Signing an autograph, standing at the entrance to the Museum of Modern Art. And it was a print that had been scanned and put on Tumblr. And not just the print, but the back of the print. And that's how I ended up, you know, studying her archive. But on the back of the print, she wrote Salvador Dali, which meant she was culturally literate. And she put the date and the time, like to the minute. I love that. So she put this time code on there. And then I went to the Museum of Modern Art's website and I found the listing of all of their press releases from all of their exhibitions. And I found what was in the museum on that date while she was at the entrance door. And it was a show called Five French Photographers. And it was many of the photographers whose work she is compared to. And this is very early on. This was 1952, I think. This is before she's using the Rolleiflex even. And it was Cartier-Bresson. So she was literate. She knew the work. She didn't come out of nowhere. And this is before she's using the Rolleiflex. So she's already actively photographing. At any rate, by the time they came to my office for my little soundbite, and they had double parked their car in a 20-minute loading zone, <laughs> they left an hour and a half later. Oh, my God. And had extended their program into a two-part series. <laughs> so, ah, oh, my goodness. Incredible. So, so it became The Meteoric Rise of Vivian Meyer, followed by Searching for Vivian Meyer. Yeah. And I have so many more questions. I want to know how she sort of became interested in this, how she knew who Dali was. Also, the fact that she would go to sort of Audrey Hepburn premieres and then she photographed like it wasn't just the kind of unknown people out on the street. It was the cultural elite as well. But I want to go all the way back because Vivian Meyer was born on the 1st of February 1926 in Manhattan in New York City. She was the daughter of a French mother and an Austrian father. And so you mentioned how she is from this long lineage of women who were living maids for people. Tell me about her family. What did you discover? Well, her parents separated when she was very young and she had an older brother who was very problematic. He ended up in detention for some petty crime that he committed. He was six years older than her and they spent only a very brief period together. And that's very complicated. So all I want to say about that is that it was a very problematic childhood. Her parents met, they lived blocks from each other. And even from the beginning, there were these, I don't want to call them lies, but they were lies. <laughs> where at the wedding certificate, her mother says that she was born in Lyon, France, which sounded better than the Champsour Valley, where she came from this little remote village. They basically invented themselves, which wow. is the beginning of that. But I think a lot of this goes back to a pivotal event that I call starting the legacy of lies in this family, which is that Vivian Meyer's mother was born illegitimately. 
1897, which was a huge, I can't even emphasize how large of a stigma that was. She was born in 1897 and her mother left the provincial village of France for New York in 1900, I think even on her baby's third birthday. So there's this like whole disjointedness to the family. And the most important part is that her sort of view as an outsider starts from the beginning as well. And so her mother basically takes her to France when she's six years old from New York. And this is in the height of the depression. So it's 1932. She's born in 1926. When she's six years old, probably she had not even started school yet in the States but she was an American girl because she was living in New York City. Her mother takes her back to the ancestral home where she stays for six years until she's 12. So she arrives in France as an American girl. She has all of her schooling in French. She learns the history of France. She learns how to write and do arithmetic in French. She then returns to New York at the age of 12, and now she's a French girl. So she's never quite this or that in the prominent culture. So she probably had to relearn English at that point. And at the age of 12, they say in linguistically, if you learn a new language after 12, you will never lose your accent. This is something that I've read. So in the Maloof movie, they talk about that she had a fake accent, that she pretended she was French. And to be fair, she invented herself. And I think that was to have control over her own life. That was her agency to be able to decide who she was going to be for herself. So especially as a child, she was at the mercy of the people surrounding her. And her mother brought her back at 12. And then I think she ends up in a foster home in Queens in New York. And then by that time, she's like 18 or 20. If you want to see a good parallel between who she was at different times, What I like to compare her to is that she was born the same year as Queen Elizabeth and Marilyn Monroe. Oh, wow. So if you you look at a photograph of Vivian Meyer in 1952 or 1950 more so when she returns to France on on a year-long jaunt, her hair is down to her waist. She wears it pulled back in a bun. And Marilyn Monroe and Princess Elizabeth both by that time had acquired their signature short hairdos. So she always looked like some sort of other, always through her whole life. But it's just so fascinating because of this idea of the outsider and her mother being this illegitimate child. There's also a bit of kind of shame bound up in this as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And secret to not let people know, which is why I think her mother invented her birthplace. She invented her parents' names also because they don't exist on the documentation in France. Her birth certificate does not have a father listed. And then that was corrected later on. These are the kinds of cultural things that don't translate anymore, both geographically as well as, you know, in time. But all of this, I think, helped form who she was. And it sort of it defines her from the start. Also, just knowing that she was also a hoarder and she loved to collect things. Also, just the nature of photography as well. It's like, you know, I remember Nan Golden always talks about the fact that photography was her way of talking because she wanted to retain the memory of people because she lost her older sister. And, you know, photography is this way into people's lives and a way to retain the memory of someone forever as well. And to sort of almost seek the truth out of something as well. Which is interesting because she stopped developing her film about thousands of roles before she died. And so... 
she didn't ever see those pictures again. So to your point, when she's on the street photographing, that's the act of hoarding. That's how a photographer is a hoarder. You're gathering and collecting these images. She didn't have to put film in her camera. At a certain point, there was no way she was going to start developing all the film. She kept putting in the camera, especially the Rolleiflex, which only takes 12 frames and is a whole ordeal to rewind it and open the camera. She kept it in a case. It was like this whole ritual to unload and reload your film. And I think that part of being a photographer is what then she became fixated on. And she was still out there, you know, using the camera, but she never looked at the pictures again. And I think it was the moment that she made the picture that became like her head was the mainframe. Oh my goodness. So how did she then come to photography? I mean, like you said, she saw this exhibition of the five French photographers. Also very interesting, which I didn't realize is that she grew up in New York City. And the fact that, you know, the 30s and 40s and 50s in New York City was this monumental time in terms of artistic change and the amount of artists who were coming over from Europe, especially and the birth of the modern, which is now MoMA in 1929. But how do we know how she came to photography or even became interested in it? We don't know, quite frankly. <laughs> what? We don't Pamela. know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming to you for the answers. I'm joking. I mean, her first known photographs are from 1950. There are no previous photographs in existence that have been identified as such. And those are the pictures that she made going to France, where she went to collect an inheritance. And so her history begins with those photographs, not to say there isn't more, and they might even still be out there. But there's been this woman, Jean Bertrand, who people bring up because she was with her. They were living together, I think, very briefly in 1930, when her mother had left the brother and then the father's family. And that's when they were living in the Bronx. And they weren't together that long because the building that they were living in, the three of them together, was only just completed. And she's only four years old at that point. So I don't know what kind of influence that would have been. And Jean Bertrand was a very different kind of photographer. She was a studio photographer. And at that point, I'm not even sure she was practicing anymore. So people lean to that because, oh, photographer, she became a photographer. But I tend to think it's more about the culture of New York because yeah. Everything was photography. As I'm looking at the history then, everybody had a camera. Maybe not at that point, but by 1950, certainly. And the point is, she was using other cameras because those first photographs are accomplished. You can see when you look at the proof sheets, which I've seen, the frame from one frame to the next, that she's thinking about this angle, that angle. She changes the exposure. She gets closer. She's doing things that a student would do that would be investigating things, would be looking at them. She shot 3,000 photographs in that year, um, all of which ended up in these storage lockers. So I've tracked all of this, and it's mind-boggling to think that she kept all of this, which is you know, how we're left to tell her story, through how I'm trying to tell her story through the evidence that she left behind. So the way I learned about her was looking at her own photographs, where I was tracking her movements and seeing how she made her way through Canada to Los Angeles, because she photographed everything. And during that one year of 1950 to 51, she's photographing her documents, which is also something she did along the way. So she made her own archive. She photographed her passport. She photographed letters and correspondences. She photographed things that were like going to an archive to learn about her. But we never hear her voice, so we don't know what she thought about things or the true, like what happened before that period. I guess also I could reframe my question in the sense that where do you think this obsession for photography came from? 
Okay, so what I never do is try to psychoanalyze her. <laughs> but I actually never found it unusual, first of all, that she never showed her work to anybody, that she continued to do this through her own life. And maybe because I'm a practicing artist, but I think, you know, if I were going to try to psychoanalyze her or try to get inside her mind or try to imagine what it would have been like to be a child who was rootless, who was carried from place to place, who didn't have a say in the decisions that were made up until she was 12 and was just sort of a byproduct of a dysfunctional family, I would think you'd want to gain some sort of control by having this thing that you have control over. Then the obsession, I think, is the, the feedback that you get by being in the world. And she loved to travel and be in the world. And her travel photographs mostly show her engaging with people. They're not street photographs the way we look at her early New York work. She had a really nice rapport, especially at a certain age when she was younger, which is also something to consider because she photographed for 50 years. And she was a nanny for at least a few decades in there. And so, you know, you get the 25-year-old Vivian Meyer versus the 35, the 45, the 55, and you see the work change. But I think that was her control over her own life. And that was the life she lived was through the things that she saw. And the camera gave her a good excuse of being in these places and being in the world. And her early photograph, you know, she was living with very wealthy people that brought her to places she would never have had access to. So she had like instant entry into places where most people wouldn't be. She was in Cuba in 1952, which is extraordinary. And she got front row seat to the Macy's Day parade in New York. And there's one photograph that's incredible. She's with children. You can see she's surrounded by children. She's quite young. The Macy's Day parade culminates with Santa Claus coming by. It's the Thanksgiving parade leading into the Christmas season. And she's in the Hotel Astor balcony at this point. And here comes Santa Claus as the climax of the parade. And she must have shouted or done something because Santa Claus turned from the street and is looking at her camera, as well as everybody on the other side of the street. So she had this, you know, maybe fascination, obviously, with famous people, not that Santa Claus would be you know, Audrey Hepburn, but that she would go where things were happening. And she was alive in these places that not just wealthy family gave her access to, but that the camera gave her access to. She ended up dressing like a French journalist with a trench coat and a beret and her Roliflex. <laughs> and she would just sort of push her way into scenarios looking like a journalist, like she had the authority to be there. And the camera does that. There's a photograph where Richard Nixon, as he's running for president, squeezes past her in a doorway because she had got across the barrier to get close enough to him that she was actually in the room with him. But she wasn't shooting for a newspaper. She was just like in the world doing these things and the thrill of it, I think, ultimately. What's incredible about her work, especially in the 50s, is like, you know, she's photographing all these different subjects. But there's also no hierarchy between if you're Santa Claus or Nixon or Hepburn or anyone between, you know, people who are kind of on the street. There's amazing pictures of the kind of couple in this sort of horse and carriage, teenager on the horse through the streets of New York City, or people just kind of wandering aimlessly, or those who are homeless. I mean, it's fascinating. She's photographing for herself, but it's almost as though she doesn't discriminate between any hierarchy of any person. Right. And I think she gravitated to the extremes as well. So the photograph of the couple on the carriage was actually a photo shoot that somebody else was doing. <laughs> <laughs> 
my God, she sounds like a hoot. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. And she's very young at this point. Yeah. While she's like living in the Hamptons or traveling with these wealthy families, she's also getting on the Third Avenue L in New York and traveling down to the Bowery. From the very first, she's photographing drunken, beat up men who are in a wheelbarrow like cart or on the curb and photographing them, like talking to them, because there are several images where she is face to face with them or camera to face, I should say. They're seated. Yeah, the man with that sandwich who's got dirt all over his face. I mean, it's extraordinary. There's a conversation playing out right there. Right. And she did that her whole life. So she continued to photograph the down and out and the culturally peripheral people, as well as seeking out Frank Sinatra. On the cover of my book is an image of Cary Grant and James Mason and Eva Marie Saint getting into a cab while they're filming a movie. She's there <laughs> because she's there to see them, to be part of the action. And she's re- she's got her camera up against the window of the cab. Yeah, it's evasive. She's a paparazzi, but she's only shooting for herself. You know, I yeah. don't think she, maybe very early on, she tried to sell the photographs. But I think of her life is very exciting in terms of the things that I can see through her eyes, through her camera. But there's also a sense of humor, like one of my favorite photographs, which I'll share in the show notes for everyone, is of a nun on a stretcher being carried out of a place called Canadian Pacific Steamships. I mean, there's also this total absurdity to her images as well. There's like this element of surrealism, which is also interesting that she knew about Dali and everyone. But I mean, you know, the nun on a stretcher, a hospital stretcher is like a, an extremely unique image. And that was while she was on a boat tour going up north in Canada. Yeah, she also photographed women wearing fancy hats, which became a relic. She was looking for maybe the absurd or the unusual, the surreal, to to your point. But she's also photographing surreptitiously. She's looking at people kissing from behind. There's a scene where she's circling an enclosed train station and they're dusky pictures. It's like she's looking through the window. And there's another beautiful photograph of like lovers on a bench, these two couple in Central Park, and she's down from behind photographing them. But she would chase women wearing hats. You, there were like several photographs. <laughs> like you could see that she spotted it. And then she'd run and she'd get a closer photograph of them. Which is why there's so many pictures of people from behind. The, you know, her body of work is so vast and so broad from the paparazzi type famous people to the children that she was watching, to the women in fancy hats, to the down and out. You could sort of categorize her work in almost every pigeonhole, including not even including street photography, which is more unawares type of, you know, juxtapositions of, you know, of things that the ones that really compare her to other photographers. But all of the other work she did, I don't know that there's a comparison in the canon, you know? And so when you hear in the John Maloof's movie, Joel Meyerowitz, who gets to appear in lots of documentaries talking about street photography, he uses words like, she was tough, that we used to describe men who are street photographers, you know, that they are fearless. But That was just one thing that she did, which is what I think makes her extraordinary. She used her camera like a copy machine. So it was just this total immersion hoarding, like you said, of everything. But I think you could look at any one of those niches of her work. And the work is still extraordinary because of her vision and the way she saw the world and what she was drawn to. Like you said, the nun in a stretcher is just 
It's like, you can't make that up. <laughs> you really can't. It's such a brilliant picture. But also her self-portraits are extraordinary. So right. in 1950s, there's this amazing one of this guy holding up a mirror and she's suddenly, it's like almost like a sort of precursor to Francesca Woodman or something. You know, she's catching herself in that mirror. Or there's the one that she's sort of taking almost like a selfie with a child next to her again. And this idea that, you know, this was also her job, but photography obviously came first. Or she sort of looks inquisitive sometimes funny sometimes kind of making a joke there are so many different elements of her personalities in her self-portraits as well but you never see a full-blown smile you see her kind of self-aware you see her maybe smirking maybe slight grin i started looking at her very earliest self-portraits as her picturing herself as a photographer here i am i'm a photographer And then they go off in all these different directions, like with the children and from the back of a rearview mirror of a car. And there they all are kind of distorted in the reflection. Um, I think every time she saw herself in some reflection, she photographed it and she did it creatively. And it's like she was always on assignment doing that. I find her self-portraits really captivating because we get to see her. But they're also so carefully regarded in the way she's framing specifically the Roliflex ones. She used different cameras differently. And sometimes she carried two and three cameras because we see photographs of her wearing two cameras by someone who's using her third camera to photograph her because we have that negative. And that was on, I think that trip you're talking about where she photographed the nun. And she's at some point also shooting motion picture footage, which was not her best work. It was just more ways of recording things. And so it's not just... You know, she's photographing everything. She's photographing everything in color and in black and white with this camera, that camera, motion picture. And she's so busy on the street. <laughs> but I just love the obsession of it as well. And also you just want more and more because every single picture gives you something else. But I mean, in 1956, she moved to the North Shore suburbs of Chicago and worked again as a nanny to support her photography passion. I mean, she worked predominantly for two families, the Gensbergs and the Raymonds. I mean, in terms of this kind of post-1956, moving out of New York into Chicago, how did her work change here? She actually was in Los Angeles before she made her way to Chicago and San Francisco. (laughs) So she took a train across California, ended up in Los Angeles, where she photographed more movie stars and ends up coming to Chicago with the San Francisco family and then stays in Chicago, answers an ad from the Gensberg family. At the beginning, her work didn't really take a shift because she's back in Chicago, which is sort of a miniaturized version of New York in some ways. And she's photographing the city in the same way she's photographing her street photographs in the city, similar to the way she was in New York, which she also did in LA, which isn't quite, well, downtown Los Angeles is urban, but she never skipped a beat with that. But then she became the suburban nanny photographer. Mm. So we see a lot more photographs of the environment, but that's because those are the negatives that we have. And so we don't know what's missing. I always say this, like we, we only know what's in an archive. We don't know what's missing from the archive. So let me address the Gensberg family. The Gensberg family had these three young boys and Vivian Meyer was essentially the same age as their mother. She stayed with them longer than with any other family and was conceivably more like a mother to them than their own mother because she spent all the time with them. And they are the ones who remember her the most fondly because she was vital. She taught them weird things about French culture. She brought them places and they stayed in contact with her till her death. One of them became her guardian at the end, paid for her medical bills, and they kept in touch with her through the end. 
And then the next family, she's now 10, 12, 15 years older, and they're getting a different iteration. The girl, Inga Raymond, is getting a different iteration of Vivian Meyer. Now she's a 45-year-old with a 10-year-old or whatever. So that's what I mean. It's like, what version do you get of this woman? Her photography didn't really change. She ended up using Inger in a lot more of her pictures, at least those the pictures that I've seen. We don't see them published because they're not the kind of pictures that people would want to buy. But the way she photographs doesn't really change, but her subject matter changes and then her equipment changes and she continues with the time. And as the politics get crazy, especially in Chicago in 1968, she is in the throes of it. She is in the aftermath of the racial riots that happened on the west side of the city. She is photographing in the aftermath of the Grand Park riots in 1968. And she is in the thick of things, which is, you know, her trademark. So that sort of fascination with being right at the center of everything and like she's being pressed up against the taxi, whether it's a famous person or whether it's a sort of political riot, she's always there in that thick of the moment, which I find utterly fascinating. And what I think her pictures reveal, I mean, in a way, I kind of, not that they're similar at all, but when you look at someone like Alice Neal's paintings, she really paints the people who shape America. And in a way, it's that, that sort of closeness and intimacy, not just through the conversation, but also the kind of physicality of it, because you're right there in the moment. And what we see with Vivian Meyer's archive and her oeuvre is just this portrait of mid-20th century America, which just shifted and shifted and shifted and was incredibly turbulent. But I'd love to also speak about who she was because we kind of grapple with that through her self-portraits. We grapple with that through her sort of obsession with photography, but also when she was a nanny, I mean, how did she take care of the kids? Obviously, she must have been very creative. I mean, I've watched footage of them sort of recall that you know, she was lots of fun. But I'm aware that in the 1960s, one of the children actually had a car accident and her immediate reaction was not to look after them. She was acting as a photojournalist, which is often a question that photojournalists get asked. Why don't you put the camera down and help in this scenario? But if you see the photographs, there's a couple things. First of all, the child is surrounded by people that are helping. So the photographs, I think, show the, the aftermath. There's a lot of activity. And then secondly, the mother of the child, when she learned about this accident, even as she arrived, she thought it was her dog that got hit and was more upset and then found out that it was her child, her son. So there was a lot of um, activity around that. And I think that Vivian Meyer was being Vivian Meyer. She was being the photographer that she was. She always had her camera. And who knows? Who that's The other thing is you don't know what happens between the photographs. <laughs> you don't know yeah. if, if she put the camera down. And that's also something that I address is that you don't know if she's alone or she's with somebody. Like she's downtown photographing. And then one of the frames shows the young girl that she was watching with her. And you're like, oh, my, she was with her the whole time. <laughs> or the same thing where she's traveling from point A to point B, and all of a sudden, somebody else shows up in three pictures on that excursion. So photographs lie and they don't lie. And so we don't know what she did in between those photographs. Maybe she put the camera down or she was helping and then she took a step back. We don't know. And so that's a unique idea around still photographs. If it was video footage or motion picture footage, I think we would have a clear idea on what was happening as things were unfolding. But I think of her as sort of like a combat photographer who is like, you know, photographing things as they unfold. And maybe it's comical because the boy wasn't hurt 
badly and you know there's a the images from that are also slightly comical i don't know they because are it, totally it's just like this boy lying in the street and you want to be like what's going on here there is this element of humor in her work and it's almost so like they're kind of playing dress up or film or something and she captures it almost like a film you can kind of imagine like you said she's obsessed with those angles and she comes at it from all these different points of view so we see everything we're kind of there with her in a way and you'll notice that she's sort of invisible in that because nobody's paying attention to what she's doing because she was such a fixture. And those are all the young children. And that, I think, is her golden period with children because yeah. she was their mother's age. She was young. And when she got older, things got a little bit more, who is this person and why is she dressed like that? Because by the time we get to her later years, when she's in her 50s and 60s and 70s, I think she's still wearing a trench coat and carrying the Roliflex, which now she looks like a relic from another time and an eccentric, which she was to be sure. But my my reading of that is those were her golden years and she kind of stayed there in a way. And her Roli work doesn't really evolve in terms of you know her the presentation of it, the way she frames her shots. She's so aesthetically spot on in her formal um, sensibility. But her 35 millimeter work is fast and quick and that's more photojournalistic at that period. But the pictures are blurry and they're grainy and they're not as aesthetically gorgeous as the Rolly work was just sort of a large medium format. So what did happen in her later life then? She moved around a lot. She was losing jobs because she was a hoarder. One employer told me that she had to fire her because she had collected so many newspapers in her room that it had become a fire hazard. The aspects of her personality that were obvious and maybe more comical when she was younger got to be more problematic as they got more accentuated. And that's also when she stopped developing her film. Maybe this is sort of back to you know, her earlier as a child where she didn't have any say in her living arrangements. And so... There's a chart that I put a map with sort of numbers that show the order of where she lived in the Chicago area in my book. And you can see that during this one little period, she moved like 10 times. And that's when her things went into storage. But she was still traveling with all the boxes and the new employers had to bring her boxes. And she was trying to keep, I think, her life around her as she was getting more and more nomadic and losing control over her stuff, basically. I mean, you can't have five storage locker worth of possessions if you're going to live in someone else's home you know we can hoard our own homes you know we've got another room we can add more boxes and i think that's when things started maybe getting more haywire and problematic yeah and like you said you know just before she died in the 2000s you know the people who she surrounded herself with they didn't even know her name and what's extraordinary is this woman sort of came into this world as a as sort of an outsider and sort of left as an outsider. I mean, it is sort of fascinating how she didn't show her work and when she was alive or she didn't make herself known. And I wonder why that is. Well, <laughs> it, the, one of my chapters ends with a quote where one of her employers, which was right in, in the 80s, because now she's at, at a different decade, and they ended up letting her go because her eccentricities were getting too much for them, and their children had gotten older. And he asked her why she never shared her photographs. And her response was, in the beginning of her paranoia phase, that she was afraid that people would steal or misuse them, which becomes ironic wow. when, when we realize that we're looking at work that she chose not to share. And there are ethical 
questions and struggles with maybe feeling guilty to look at the photographs that she chose not to share as we become you know enamored with them and the time and her work when she was a very private person she never told anybody she had a brother she told her employers that both of her parents were dead when in fact they were still alive. She filled out one passport application in 1959 saying both of her parents had died and they had not died. So the fact that she got to create her own history and reveal the information she chose to reveal and not share the things she didn't choose to share is how she had control of her life. To be fair, we lose control of our life when we die. <laughs> so whatever we leave behind becomes fair play, but it just becomes a little bit more difficult to kind of come to terms with these kinds of questions where she didn't develop that film. And I found it a little queasy when they were developing the film and hyping it like, no one has ever seen this film before. Not even Vivian has seen this film before. And I was like, oh, that just feels bad. You know, it's like she chose because she was doing this action or because of her life at that point, she didn't have the means to continue to process the film. There's just so many other layers to this that, that make it difficult to reconcile our curiosity with, you know, trying to understand somebody who was set on not telling people who she was and looking at photographs that she chose not to share. And so what I'm most invested in is getting the story right and in looking at her for who she was and not for how she may have mistreated these children or some of the problematic stories that we hear. We don't hear those stories about, I mean, I'm going to only use this because this is the canon, male photographers and their infidelities. When we're looking at their photographs, we're looking at their photographs. We're talking about the photography and how their personal life plays in does complicate things. But that's not typically what leads when we talk about most artists or most photographers. I mean, the nanny thing is really the hook and the mysterious nanny and the secretive nanny is the hook to being drawn to her work. But without that story, I think her work really stands on its own. It does what it does without knowing who she was. She's an extraordinary photographer, first and last. And so are there still negatives that are yet to be developed? No. As far as I know, all of the film has been processed, okay. but not all of the negatives have been discovered. So I was monitoring the eBay lots that were going on and I could see exactly from, and I am downloading them and putting them into the aggregate that I've been making. And I can see the spots that are filling in and some of them are incredible and no one has ever seen them. So that's part of it. And also to talk about her hit rate that all across her entire life's work, the work is incredible, which is to her credit. And what do you think she's taught you about the world through her photography? That's an interesting question. Not what she's taught me about photography, but what she's taught me about the world. Are what the world looked like in these corners that weren't published before we saw her work. Because we know the world through the photographs that rose to the top through the connoisseurs who chose what work was going to be considered art. So it were these snapshot flea market collectors who discovered her work and put it out there because it had no context. We didn't know who she was. We didn't know her story. And the work itself was already being shared, even though her name was on stuff. So her name was being applied to it. And it was before anybody knew that she was a nanny and the work was already being looked at. 
Amazing. Pamela Banos, thank you so much for this, for all your work, really, and for this incredible conversation. You have honestly blown my mind today. But as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, if you could ever meet Vivian Raya, would there be anything that you would have asked her or said to her? Well, if she would have talked to me, because I don't think she would have talked to me because I don't speak French. Um, That's true. That's true. <laughs> those are the stories that I've heard. Um, I don't think I would ask her anything. I would just tell her thank you for the work that she did and that I appreciate her. And I think that I would leave it at that. Wonderful. Pamela Banos, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists Podcast with the brilliant Pamela Banos on Vivian Meyer. I am just in awe of her story and also the legacy that she left behind. There is still so much to uncover. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Michaela Carmichael and research assistant was Viva Ruji. And of course, if you have been enjoying this episode, I would be so grateful if you were to rate, review and subscribe as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists Podcast with me, Katie Hessel.